This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. You know what's so interesting about these closing remarks is that he puts all of his audience into just two categories. He said, all of you here now are just in two categories. He said, the one category he describes in Matthew 7, 24, he said, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. He said, now that's one. You, you who heard my, these saying, my sayings and you're doing them, I liken you unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And he said, now on the other hand, there's many here today, he's saying, that, that I'm describing in Matthew 7, 26, as everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. And he says, you're likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ brought to a close his greatest teaching by putting his hearers into just two categories. And those who heard and did, and they built their house on the rock, and those who heard and did not, and they built their house on the sand. He closes his greatest teaching with the description of two groups of people both building their house. Nobody's not building. Both are building. He was saying that everyone's building a house here. Some were building their house on the rock. Some were building their house on the sand. But everybody's building. Everybody's building a house. I really like the song that we just sung. So the house, the mansion. See, in his description... There's nobody who's not building a house. Everyone is building their house. So, and he describes how those who heard his sayings and obeyed his sayings were those who built their house on the rock. He says, on a rock. I know Matthew says, on a rock. But in the Greek, it doesn't say on a rock. It says, on the rock. And referring to the Lord Jesus Christ as the rock. And those who built their house on the rock and had to, then, then they had their house withstand the most unusual beating from torrential rains and sweeping floods and hurricane winds, but, but, it, but it stood. Why? Because it was built on the rock. But by contrast, 
the Lord Jesus Christ said, those who built their hand on the sand, they saw what he called a great fall. When the same unusual beating happened of the torrential rains and the sweeping floods and the hurricane winds, that house was a great fall because it was built on the sand. And when he finished his great Sermon on the Mount with that illustration, the next verse reads in Matthew 7, 28, the response of the people when they heard this. So they came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished. The audience was stunned. No one would ever finish a teaching like that. You're going to finish a teaching with such an abrupt, startling conclusion? Because after such a long teaching, for those, for those that, who were building on, on the, their house on the rock, I mean, this is a group, and they had long teaching, and they hear you talk about the building on the rock, what happened? They left. They left the teaching. They went home. They have this quiet assurance in their hearts. But on the other hand, for those after such a long teaching who were building their house on the sand of non-obedience, they left the teaching and went home disturbed with the picture fresh in their minds of the loud noise of a house breaking up with snapping timbers and collapsing walls and falling ceilings. In his words, great was the fall of it. And that's how the Lord Jesus Christ sends his hearers home. He said, you know, have a nice day. <laughs> Not with a false sense of security that all was okay. Not with a false comfort, but with the crash of doom. His intention was that those who were building their house on the sand would go home with a profound restlessness in their souls. And if there's a person in this church today who's just playing church and not digging deep to find Christ, hear him, obey him, the best thing that could happen is to go home with a restlessness that drives to Christ for the rest that he promised. Anyone today, who reads the Sermon on the Mount with an open heart, with an honest heart, cannot come to the end without reaching the same conclusion of the crash of doom. He made clear, both groups of hearers are described as hearing these sayings of mine. Both. Everybody heard. Both groups, they liked his teaching. Both groups came to hear his teaching. One group did not obey his teaching, they were counterfeits. They were counterfeit Christians. A counterfeit Christian, counterfeit Christian likes to hear the teachings of Christ. A counterfeit Christian comes to hear the teachings of Christ. A counterfeit Christian is not opposed to coming to church, is not opposed to listening to sermons, is not opposed to reading the Bible, is not opposed to saying prayers. And by attending church, by listening to sermons, by reading the Bible, by saying prayers, the counterfeit Christian looks good. And, and he looks orthodox in his beliefs and faithful in church attendance. But the counterfeit Christian looks deceptively good. The key to what is fundamentally wrong is found in the, in the, um, the uh, other description of this passage in Luke's Gospel, where it says in Luke 6, 47, whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. 
See, in that verse, Luke gives us what is fundamentally wrong with the counterfeit Christian. And he describes it by the counterfeit Christian does not follow three essential steps which are involved in building the house on the rock, which he says are, cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them. Step one, cometh to me. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Step two, heareth my sayings. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ. Step three, doeth them. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek, hear, obey. See, the counterfeit Christian, he's not interested in going deeper. The counterfeit Christian is only interested in what are the minimum requirements. But the true Christian digs deep to get to the truth, even if he has to listen to long sermons like me. <laughs> he's not just interested to know about the compassion of God. He's interested to go deeper and to know about the righteousness and the holiness of God. He's not just interested to know about the mercy of God. He's interested to go deeper and know about the wrath of God. He's not just interested to know about the patience of God. He wants to go deeper and know about the judgment of God. He's digging deeper and deeper to know all about God. He's digging deeper to know what the Lord calls these sayings of mine. He's not just saying, well, this saying is relevant for today, and this saying is not relevant for today. He's not just saying, well, this saying is for one dispensation of time, and this saying is for another dispensation of time. See, the ground where the Lord Jesus Christ taught, where he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, that ground has a very deep, sandy covering. And down deep, under the sand, there's bedrock. And that's why in Luke's gospel, there are words that are added, which are very instructive to us, where it says in Luke 6.48, he is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beats vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. See, these words, and digged deep. The person who builds his house on the rock keeps on digging through the sand until he hits bedrock, and it's, it's not easy. He's got to keep on digging deeper. He's got to keep on going until he hits this, this rock foundation. But what's essential to see in his closing illustration is that the groups were both building their house. Both knew that they needed to build a house. Both were building a house. That shows that there's something very deep in our human souls that longs for what a house represents. And when we had the song just now, that was expressing the longing of the human soul for a house. You know, I got a mansion, a house over the hilltop. And what do you, what do you think of when you think of a house? When they sung that song, you saw a mansion, and, and, you think of, and I say house to you. What comes into your mind? What does a house represent? A house represents a place of rest. You know, you get, you get home, you, oh, you shut the door, oh, now I can relax. Rest. Yeah? All the noise on the outside, you shut the door and you go, sanctuary. At least it should be that way. <laughs> it's quiet in here. You get home and you, you shut the door, you lock the door. Like my stepfather, Ezra, lived on the 42nd floor of an uh, of apartment in New York City, and he had, I think it was seven locks on the door. It was just like this, one after the other. He was always worried about things. I remember he, it was amazing, it was to watch him. He ate an apricot one time. He took the apricot pit, wrapped it up in tinfoil, 
unlocked the seven locks, went out to the, to the trash heap, threw it in there, came back, locked back up the seven locks, you know. <laughs> it's a place of security. It's a place of protection. A house is a place of love and fellowship. That's what a house represents. And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ illustrated to every hearer that they were building their house, it shows that deep within every soul is a longing for what a house represents, a place of rest, sanctuary, security, protection, love, fellowship. And our Lord Jesus Christ knows that deep within our souls we have that longing for that rest, that sanctuary, that security, that protection, that love and fellowship. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ says, oh, yes, there's one more thing on my list. One more thing that I see is a sorrow. It's a longing. I got that on the list too. And he says in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, come again, receive you to myself. Where I am, there be also. You may be also. He knows. He knows that deep within our souls, we long for an ideal house. He, he says that when we die, he'll bring us to the ideal house. And he says that ideal house is called my father's house. And he knows that, he knows that we really do want eternal rest. We want a sanctuary. We want security. We want eternal protection. We want fellowship and love from him and with him. And he knows this is our deep needs. And so he puts that on the list too, our eternal house. Now, we see now Boaz has focused on these griefs and sorrows and burdens that Ruth has, and he's made them his first priority as he's, as he's felt this and made this list and going over it. And it cost Boaz something. It cost him heart pain. And that's what compassion cost, heart pain. And before Boaz saw Ruth, Boaz was comfortable. I mean, you know, he's the landowner and all these people are taking care of him. And Ruth was not comfortable in her soul pain. But Boaz decides, I'm going to open my heart and I'm going to make myself uncomfortable to make sure that she's comfortable. And that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before man sinned, the Lord Jesus Christ was comfortable in heaven. And all the heavenly hosts are serving him. And after man sins, and man's no longer comfortable, he's got soul pain, he has no peace, he has defilement, he's separated from life, from the person who is life himself. But just like Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make himself uncomfortable, as it says in Philippians 2, 7. He's, it says, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now we turn our focus to Ruth's response, which is in verse 10. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldst take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger? See, when Ruth heard all that Boaz did for her, she fell on her face. Ruth's singular response to Boaz was humility. I mean, verse 10 is so graphic. It's wonderful the way verse 10 says it. It puts it. You know, I love the King James, and I love the way it says, Then she fell on her face. Hmm? Then the next words are significant where it says, she bowed herself to the ground. See, the way it's written, it's nice. She bowed herself to the ground. It gives a picture. I mean, you can see a picture. You know, she bowed herself to the ground. 
doesn't say she bowed to the ground. It says she bowed herself to the ground. And it's like Ruth is taking control over this other person called herself and making herself bow to the ground. In those words, we can see that there's a part of Ruth that's resisting the bowing to the ground. There's a part of Ruth called the herself in verse 10. And the herself part of Ruth is saying, put my face on the ground? I don't think so. No, I don't bend the knee to anyone. I bow to no one. I'm number one. I, I'm preeminent here. I'm, I'm number one. I, I, must de- I must increase. Boy, I just got to decrease. People bow to me. I don't bow to anybody. See, that's the voice of the herself part of Ruth. And then there's the other part of Ruth called the she. You probably think I'm crazy for doing this, but that's all right. She, in verse 10, and the she part of Ruth says, I'm unworthy of all that Boaz has done for me. I'm a sinner. I have no merit of my own. I'm only the recipient of such grace from Boaz. I didn't, I'm I'm not the first, I'm the last. Boaz must increase, I must decrease. It's right for me to bow to the ground, put my face to the dirt. And if the she part of Ruth that knew she should bow to Boaz and the herself part of Ruth that resisted bowing to Boaz, if they were to have a conversation between themselves, it might go something like this. The she part of Ruth would say to the herself part of Ruth, you know, I've thought about all that Boaz has done. I've thought about the list that he has meticulously put together. I've thought about the the, 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 the solutions that he has in particular put for each one, I've considered how Boaz did not have to do all this for Ruth. I've looked at how much it cost Boaz. I've contemplated on how unworthy Ruth is to receive all this from Boaz. And after all this thought, I've come to the conclusion that there's only one response for Ruth, and that is to bow. I came to this conclusion through thought. Then it's time for the herself part of Ruth to speak, to respond back. So the herself part of Ruth speaks back to the she part of Ruth and says, I think it's wonderful that you've given all that thought about Boaz's generation and Boaz's unworthiness to receive the grace of Boaz. I think it's marvelous that you've carefully considered what it cost Boaz to care for Ruth. I understand that you've come to that conclusion and there's only one response you feel, which is about Ruth. Now, there's just one problem, and that is, I don't feel like bowing to Boaz. I don't feel like bowing to anyone. You can go thinking and contemplating and considering and weighing and meditating and believing all you want, but because it doesn't change one bit about how I feel. And I don't feel like bowing to Boaz. And as long as I don't feel like bowing to Boaz, Ruth is not going to bow to Boaz. And so the argument goes on. The, arguments go, the argument went where the she part of Ruth says to the herself part of Ruth, but it's not reasonable to not bow. And, and Ruth should bow. And the herself responds back and, and argues, I don't care what's reasonable or not. I only care about how I feel. I don't feel like bowing. And if I'm in control of Ruth, then Ruth's not going to bow to Boaz. That's all. And, and the argument would then escalate to the part where the she part of Ruth would say back to the herself part of Boaz, yeah, well, I don't care about your feeling. I only care about what is reasonable and what's right to do. And if I'm in control of Ruth, then Ruth is going to bow to Boaz. And the fight goes on. And the fight gets so intense that in verse 10, it indicates to us that the she part of Ruth takes, con- Ruth takes control of Ruth. And what happens is the she part of Ruth takes Takes, takes the back of the neck of the herself part of Ruth and pushes her down. 
And it says, she bowed herself down to the ground. <laughs> the she part of Ruth, am I the only one having fun with this? <laughs> the she part of Ruth pushes the herself part of Ruth down to the ground. And she pushed herself to bow so we can hear she say to herself, enough with how you feel. Ruth is not going to obey how she feels. Ruth is going to obey how she thinks with her mind and what she believes with her spirit. And down Ruth is going to go to bow before Boaz. And down Ruth went to bow before Boaz, as it says in verse 10. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground. And when that happened, we all cheered. We said, oh, yes, the mind of Ruth and the beliefs of Ruth got the victory over the feelings of Ruth, and Ruth bowed to Boaz. Now, when we look at this conflict going on inside of Ruth, between the she part of Ruth and the herself part of Ruth, the resisting the bowing, we understand this great tug of war. We identify with it between the, 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 the she humble side of Ruth and the herself proud part of Ruth. And we understand all too clearly about the she side of Ruth saying bow and the herself part of Ruth saying, no, I bow to no one. People bow to me. And we also understand that for Ruth, it could have gone either way. And it could have gone as it did, where the she side of Ruth won and, and Ruth bows, but it could have gone the other side, where the herself uh, side of Ruth wins and Ruth doesn't bow. There really was a question in this internal struggle of Ruth as to who was going to win in this tug of war between the she side of Ruth, who said bow, and the herself, says, you know, herself side of Ruth says no. And, and we experienced that same internal struggle, where we, wanted, we want there to be a verse 10 in our lives, she bowed herself to the ground. We want that in our lives. We want to be able to declare the same victory in our internal struggle here, our tug of war, our internal tug of war between the she or he and the herself and himself. And we want finally that the she or the he part of ourselves takes control and overpowers the herself or himself part of us and pushes the himself or herself down to bow to the ground before the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at the struggle, we identify with that and say, yes, I understand what Ruth is going through. As I see, there's a part of Ruth that knows it should bow to Boaz, and there's a part of Ruth that resists bowing to anyone. And we say, that's me. And there's a part in me that knows I must bow to my Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there's a part of me that resists bowing to him. That's me. And Paul saw the same struggle going on inside of him, and he described it for us in Romans 7, 15, where he said, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. What I hate, I do. And then I do that which I would not. I consent unto the law that it's good. Now, it's no more I that do it, but sin that's dwelling in me. For I know that in me, I mean in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. How to perform that which is good? I find not members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. See, in this passage, Paul saw the same problem that's internal tug of war struggle. And Paul said, that, that, that he said, Sometimes the wrong side wins. And he says in Romans 7, 15, that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. And what I hate, I do. 
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program was brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.